What's the name of that? What's the name of that? Jesus, your reign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew something I knew there, but that's beautiful. Thank you so much. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. You know, I'm, I'm kind of glad to be able to see you again today. Uh, last week we had a great time over at the Christian school, but the way the lights were, I could only see about the first six rows. So I've come up to, I've emailed you or talked to several of you this week and said, where were you last Sunday? And they said, we were at church. I said, at Grace? Well, at the school. Oh, okay. So I didn't, I didn't know because I couldn't see for the, the lights. They had a bunch of lights in my eyes, and so it was difficult. So I'm glad to be able to see all of you because I like to see who's sitting out there listening and uh, be sure that you're listening uh, in that way, you know. But anyway, we're going back to Hebrews chapter 12 today. We've, we preached on this same text. I preached on this same text two, uh, three weeks ago. And then we took a break and, and did uh, the cross he bore and two miracles in three days for Palm Sunday and, and Easter Sunday. And I want to come back to that same text because I'm, uh, it's one of those texts that just you can never exhaust. I mean, we could, we could preach on it, I could preach on it for the rest of the, the month and never exhaust it or even think about exhausting it. And it's one that sometimes people look at and scratch their heads because he talks about Mount Sinai, he talks about Mount Zion and, and, and these various kingdoms and everything. And I want to just concentrate on what, what the writer here is really speaking of and dealing with in this text today. And, and in essence, what he's talking about in verses 18 through 29 is what the, te- uh, the sermon title is in the bulletin today, and that is that we belong to a spiritual, eternal, an unshakable kingdom. Really what he's talking about here is assurance that we have as believers. That if we are in Christ, we are in this kingdom of Zion, this kingdom of God that is is a secure, spiritual, unshakable, and eternal kingdom in which we we reside. And it's important that we as Christians get a grasp of that. I had Brother Scott read the text today out of John where Jesus talks about eternal security and the the strength of Christ to hold us. No one can snatch us out of his hand. No one can snatch us out of the Father's hand. And Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And I, I wanted to parallel that just a little bit with what the writer of Hebrews is saying again here at the end of chapter 12. Because I really think that our consistency, our walk, our, our, our living out, our calling that, that the writer talks about here is, is contingent upon and determined by how much we understand about what Christ has done in our life. Not just what, it's not what we've done to earn anything, it's what Christ has done in us, in building us, in strengthening us, in adopting us into the family of God, and by his grace, doing his work in our lives. It's, a, it's an, an enormous truth that so often we miss. We've talked about in this 12th chapter, this being a, a chapter of exhortation, a chapter of, of, of challenge, if you will, to every believer. And in verse 1, if you remember, and I, I went over this three weeks ago, but I think it's important to remember it again. In verse 1, we're encouraged to lay aside every encumbrance and every sin. Everything that would keep us from running the race of the Christian life, 
the writer says, lay it aside. You don't need encumbrances. You don't need sin. You, you need to just put it aside and away from you. And the way you do that, he, he exhorts us in verse 2 by saying, to, to fix our eyes on Jesus, that is, focus our attention on the author and the finisher of our salvation, that one, that only, that powerful, that loving, that kind, that gracious, Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Then 4 through 11, he talks about how we're called to expect and to endure discipline. That the Christian life will not be a life that is only filled with happiness and, and, and lollipops. I mean, it's not going to be a life that's just all fun and games. That there will be difficult times, there will be struggles in this life, and many of those struggles will be a gracious, loving Father disciplining us in order to get us back into the path to which he's called us. It's not punishment. Christ has borne our punishment, but it's discipline in the sense that he wants to correct us and direct us in the direction that God has called us to go. So we're called to expect and endure discipline. Verses 12 and 13 says we're called to strengthen the weak brother and sister. There is this one another. There is this mutual accountability and this mutual responsibility within the Christian life. When, when, Abel was, when Cain was asked about his brother Abel, where's your brother Abel? He said, he said am I my brother's keeper? And, and, and he was answering it in a rhetorical way by saying, I'm not responsible for my brother. But Jesus makes it very clear, and the New Testament makes it very clear, that indeed in the body of Christ, in the family of God, we really are our brother and sister's keepers. We are responsible for one another. We are, we are accountable to one another. And we ought to be touching one another in such a way that we are strengthening those who are weak and lifting up those who have feeble knees. It's just a matter of, of love. It really is a matter of love within the body of Christ that I love you so much that I won't let you suffer in weakness. I love you so much that I won't let you stumble and fall to the best of my ability. Now, ultimately, it's Christ who does that, and we know that, but Christ uses us as his instruments, as his tools, if you will, in the lives of other people, and that's what he's called us to be and called us to do. And finally, before we get to this text, we're told in verse 14 that we are called to pursue peace and holiness. Pursue peace with all men as far as is possible in the, in the area of the, as long as within the truth. Pursue peace with all men and pursue holiness, godliness, sanctification, without which no one will see the Lord. So, so the writer here in, verse, in, in chapter 12 is, is really concerned about one thing. He says it in many different ways. But he's really concerned about the simple fact that he wants you and me to function as disciples of Jesus Christ. Not as church members, although we are church members if we're in Christ. We'll talk about that in, in these verses. But not just as, by, as, as, as sort of passive church members, not those who just kind of stand by, bystanders, if you will, and, and watch the world and the church and Christ and everything else go by and just say, oh, well, maybe, maybe someday, maybe one day I'll, I'll get involved. No, no, we're to be involved in each other's lives in a community of love and respect and accountability. It's so important to understand that's what this writer wants us to know. That's what this writer wants us to 
to grasp as we live out in the world in which we live the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen at the words he wrote starting in verse 18. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind and to the blast of a trumpet and the sounds of words which sound was such that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them for they could not bear the, the command if even a beast touches this mountain it will be stoned. And, and so terrible was the sight that Moses said I am full of fear and trembling. You know, he's, he's talking about Mount Sinai there. He's talking about all the pyrotechnics and all that's taking place around that mountain as the people are watching it and they are scared absolutely to death. And God says, if you even touch this mountain while all this is going on, if you even approach this mountain, you'll die. If even your donkey or your, your sheep or your goat comes up on the mountain while all this is going on, then they are to be stoned. They're to die because they've touched the holiness of God. And you cannot do that in the sense of Sinai, the law. But he says, it's not that way with you. Verse 22, he said, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and the myriads of angels. That's thousands and thousands and thousands of angels. And to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Remember the, the Old Testament tells us that even in his death, the blood of Abel cries out from the ground and speaks of judgment and speaks of, uh, of what is taken, the, the unfaithfulness of man and the faithfulness of God. The, the blood of Abel even cries out from the ground. But the writer here says, don't you know the blood of Abel doesn't even begin to speak what this blood with which you've been sprinkled with is. That is the blood of the mediator, the blood of Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new covenant. Verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those who did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns us from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will spare not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of the created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may, may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken... Let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. And that word service there is also a word that can be trans, uh, translated worship. An acceptable service, an acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of God. I want you to see in these verses, just very quickly as we kind of recount them a bit, but also hopefully hear something new coming out of this this morning in your understanding of the Christian life. First of all, in verses 18 through 24, the writer is wanting us to clearly understand that Christians are a part of the realm of gospel grace. 
Christians, believers, those who have trusted Christ are part of the realm or the kingdom of the gospel of grace. Sinai represented the law. Sinai represented that which only showed man what they needed and did not ever have a power to change a man. But the gospel of grace and the kingdom of the gospel, the realm of the gospel of grace, is where we as believers in Jesus Christ, all Christians, reside in that kingdom, in that part. And what he's talking about in those verses, 18 through 24, is simply this, that we have assurance as believers. We have certainty as believers that these things have happened. We live in the days of the new covenant, not the old covenant. We live in the days which has been sealed and perfected by Jesus Christ. We live in these days between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. We live in the era of the new covenant where many of God's promises to that people of God have been waiting for many hundreds of years and they've now come to fruition in this new covenant relationship. There's great glory, the writers say, and there's great assurance, there's great confidence in this new covenant. And we ought, we ought to see it, we ought to seek to understand it, we ought to believe it, and we ought to live by it. That's the essence of what he's saying. We're not just called to see something. We're not just called to hear something. We're not even ultimately just called to believe something, although belief, faith is the essence of the beginning but that is not the completion of it we are called to believe it and then we are called by the grace of Jesus Christ in our life to live it out before a watching world we live out that holiness live out that sanctification so that those around us might see who he is and what he's all about but what is he talking about here when he talks about we have come to Mount Zion we've come to the city of the living God he's not talking about earthly Jerusalem but he's talking about the heavenly Jerusalem He's talking about that which is perfected in Christ. And the heavenly Jerusalem is not just something that we are looking forward to, but the heavenly Jerusalem is in reality the capital city of the new heavens and the earth. But what it is, it is God's people indwelt by God. Now think about that for a moment. This Mount Zion, this new Jerusalem, this heavenly Jerusalem, is something that we will see in completion when he comes again. We'll see it in its finality when he comes again. But the new Jerusalem, Mount Zion, is now something where there's a city of God that is dwelling on this earth, and that city is made up of all believers in Christ, all those who have trusted him. And they're not just a people together, but they're a people who are indwelt by God. We are, as Christians, that city. He indwells us. He's assembled us. For the great day of the Lord around the throne to begin praising God forever. This is the mountain to which we have come. This is Mount Zion. We experienced a bit of it this morning when we gathered together earlier in this service to to, to lift our voices and lift our hearts before Christ, before the throne of Christ, and to worship Him and exalt Him and glory in Him. We are that new city. We are the people of God. Secondly, he tells us that we have come to a mountain where, that, that have innumerable angels in a, in a festal gathering. You know, there were, it said back in the Old Testament, back in, when the law was given, it said in the book of Exodus that there were 10,000 angels that attended at the giving of the law. 
There were 10,000 angels on that mountain with Moses celebrating the giving of the law. But the writer here says that there are myriads of angels. Literally, there is an uncountable number of angels who are present at the gathering of God's people, of the New Jerusalem. The, and we all know, we've talked about this too many times before. I, know, I hope you know this. We have a, an absolute misunderstanding of what angels are all about. Uh, in, in our day, we see angels as beautiful little fairy-like characters, you know, who have wings and twit about just looking after people and caring for things. But messengers, uh, angels are messengers of a holy God. Angels in the, in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, when an angel was seen by people, they didn't say, oh, what a beautiful gown you're wearing. They didn't say, oh, oh, I'm so, so thrilled. There's an angel that has come into my presence. I'm, I'm, I must be blessed beyond words. An angel is here to watch over me. When they saw an angel, they fell as dead men. They were terrified by the angels. They, they were fearful of the angels because they are the messengers and the warriors of a holy God. They're, they're not some kind of little fancy decoration for God's table. And they come to proclaim the truth of the gospel. They come to proclaim the truth of God. And, and angels are attending this gathering of God's people together in this Mount Zion, this new Jerusalem. He says thirdly in this passage that we have come to the assembly of the firstborn. The assembly of the firstborn. Uh, literally, when he talks about that in verse 23, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Some people look at that and they say, what in the world is the assembly of the firstborn? What is the assembly of, or the church of the firstborn? Well, let me ask you this. Who is the firstborn from the dead? Jesus. Jesus Christ. So, so he's saying here that, that we are, are now become a part of the assembly of Christ, of the church of Jesus Christ. That's who we are if we are in him. We're not aliens. We're not foreigners. We're not standing outside the door trying to beat on it to get in. We have been made a part of that assembly. We have been made a part of that church. That is a universal, worldwide expression of, of the church of Jesus Christ and an expression of the church that's not only us who are gathered on a Sunday morning here and other places but those who have been redeemed those who have truly trusted Christ who have now gone on to heaven they're a part of that church it's every believer that's ever lived is gathered in this sacred assembly of the firstborn it's the church it's the people of God it's those who have trusted Christ fourthly he says We've also come to the judge. The judge. God, who is judge of all. We, we have come to this judge. That's a powerful phrase there in the second part of verse 23. And to God, the judge of all. It's a word of authority. It's a statement of authority. It's a statement of power. It's a, it's a powerful and scary thing if you're not in Christ. We've not come to an earthly judge who can make mistakes. You know, judges do their best, I suppose. But judges that sit on human bars of justice can make errors. 
they can pass wrong verdicts. They can condemn the innocent and set free the guilty. They, they, they make all sorts of mistakes. But we come to a judge who is a perfect judge, a, a powerful judge, a, a judge of absolute authority, and a judge who makes no mistakes. He, he can't make mistakes. Who, who can't do wrong. And we stand before him, the scripture says, already already justified if we're in Christ by the blood of Christ. We stand before this judge covered, coated, cleansed by the blood, uh, the sprinkled blood of that mediator. Oh, we never will avoid seeing him as judge because that's who he is and that's what he is. But there's a different approach to God the judge by the believer who is in Christ than by the unbeliever who is coming before him for the judgment, for the, the declaration of that judgment. For we have already been declared in Christ, not guilty by the work of Christ. Fifth, he says, we also come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. To the spirits of the righteous made perfect. What in the world is that? Well, he's speaking there of those saints of God, those believers, Christians, those who have already died and departed this world and have entered into the presence of God in, he in the heavenly realm, and in that place, they have not only, been, uh, they've not only known their justification from earth, they've not only known the experience of sanctification on this earth, but now they enter into his presence, and they know the great glory of his glorification of the believer. They are saints who have been made perfect. They're, they're, they're the, sp the spirits of just men and women declared just by Christ, who now stand there, and they are not just declared not guilty, they are perfected in his presence. We are Christians on the earth. Enter into Christ and come to this Mount Zion, and we stand in awe of and grateful for the fact that many who have gone before, I lost a dear friend, this, or a friend this past week, pretty close friend, from a former church. Uh, he died much younger than me, but he knew Christ, had some struggles, had a bad car wreck a few years ago and messed up some things, and he, he struggled through that. But I know this morning that I stand here before God and before Christ knowing that he is now a perfected saint. And he's still a part of the church of which I'm a part. We're all together in this thing. And that's what the writer is saying those saints which have already experienced the reality of God's perfection. Sixthly, he says we, we, we not only come to a judge, we not only come to those perfected saints, but in verse 24, maybe the central verse of the whole chapter, he says, and we come to Jesus. You, know, you almost think he would have said at the beginning, the first thing, we come to Jesus. You know, in, instead of going through all this, this uh, mountain and all this church and all this angels and, and all these other things, you'd think you would have started with Jesus. But understand, all of that is wrapped into one. There's not a, 
there's not a listing of priority here. There's just a listing of, of equal glorious things. We've come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And, and it's interesting there. Do you notice he doesn't use Jesus Christ? He just uses the name. You know, you've been taught this, so I don't, I'm not worried about you making a mistake, but a lot of times in our world today, a lot of people make a mistake about Jesus Christ. They think Jesus is his first name, Christ is his second name. You know, like Bill Haynes or whatever, that, that that's just, it must have been Joseph Christ and Mary Christ and because this is Jesus Christ. Well, that's not the way it is. Jesus is his name, Christ is his title. Christ is the title of his authority, Messiah, one who rules and reigns with, with all power and all authority. I mean, so, so it's, his, it's his authority, it's his title that he is Christ, Messiah, anointed one of God. But Jesus is his name. It, it's his personal name. It comes from Joshua. It means he will save his people, but it, it's his name to which the writer of Hebrews says, we come, we come to Jesus. He is our fully human, fully divine Savior, and he is the mediator of the new covenant. That is, you've got God over here, and you've got man over here, and there are odds, there's sin, there's rebellion, there's all this stuff that keeps man from being able to get to God, and Jesus comes as the mediator, the one in the middle, the one who brings by his death on the cross man and God together in family, in church, in relationship, in, in, in a, a fellowship that is beyond description. He's the mediator of the new covenant. The mediator has to do something to make it happen. And what he did was he died. We talked about that the last two Sundays. He bore our sins on the cross. He, 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 he carried out those two miracles. One you couldn't see, the atonement on the cross. One you could see when the tomb was empty. But he's the mediator of the covenant of grace. What a joyous truth. And second, we've come, uh, excuse me, seventh, we have come to the sprinkled blood. To the sprinkled blood of the mediator, which speaks better and louder and clearer and with more truth than the blood of Abel. It's not merely the blood of sacrifices of animals, but we've come to the sprinkled blood of God's own Son. It's not just that it's sprinkled for a temporal uh, uh, dealing with sin, but it's sprinkled for an absolute dealing with sin, a, a complete dealing with sin, a complete cleansing of sin. We stand, as we talked about, as I prayed this morning in the, in the pastoral prayer, we stand clothed in his righteousness because his blood has been sprinkled upon us. stand in his righteousness we stand covered by his blood by his sacrifice so the, the thing the writer wants to see in verses 16 through 24 is that assurance that 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 we are in the realm of the gospel of grace and that we are we are secure as jesus said in john 10 we are secure in christ and in everything else in everything we do we keep our eyes fixed on him focused on him looking unto him 
just briefly, we won't deal with this nearly like we did with those verses, but see these other two things that he's talking about because he brings about the idea of this unshakable kingdom and this, this gratitude, this, this, this accountability. Verses 25 through 27. Basically, he's talking about the voice of Christ in the gospel of grace means a greater accountability. And he said, if those who refuse to listen to him who is speaking, uh, you know, while on earth, or those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more, I, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken that is the created things, as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. In other words, in the gospel of grace, Jesus is shaking away all that doesn't matter. And there's a greater accountability to hear the voice of God in the gospel than there was the voice of God in the, in the law. And if, if those who didn't listen to his voice in the law stand condemned, how much more will those who fail to listen to his voice in the gospel of grace be condemned? Yet one more time, denoting those things which can be shaken will be shaken and shaken out so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. What are those things that cannot be shaken? It's those things that Christ is doing in your life. Let me tell you, those cars, those houses, you think the people in Alabama don't realize those things can be shaken? I, I saw a picture of a brand new home that a person had bought and moved in on Tuesday. And on Wednesday, there was nothing there, just ground. I saw a picture of a, of a brand new Mercedes that a guy had bought just a week earlier and that Mercedes was twisted up and bent up and banged up so much it looked like a can of soup that had been crushed. You think those people in Alabama don't know that, that their things of this world can be shaken and can be destroyed and can be lost in a heartbeat? But I love the old boy who stood there in the University of Alabama cap with a big white A on it and said, but you know, this is just stuff. These are just things. Our faith is not in this stuff. Our faith is in the Lord. Stuff that can't be, things that can't be shaken. Things that will endure forever are those things that Christ is doing in your life. And ultimately and completely, that's all that matters. And there's an accountability in this gospel of grace to understand that. Accountability before God. And then finally, in those last two verses, verses 28 and 29, you see, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we offer, may offer to God an acceptable, an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Or, or maybe we could read that this week. Our God is a consuming tornado. You know, 
grace and gratitude and, and really gospel fear, biblical fear belong together in the Christian life. The, the, the grace of Christ that is unmerited to save you is the same grace that's needed to live the Christian life. You don't get saved by grace and then stand for the rest of your life in works. You don't get saved by grace and say, okay, now I've just got to try the best I can. No, you're saved by grace and you stand in grace and you walk in grace and you live in grace and you trust his grace and you trust his power and you trust his presence and you walk in him. You understand that? I mean, that really is important. It really is important to realize that we can't do it. To say, I saw somebody write this this past week and I, I liked it. To say that I am bad and I need to try harder is nothing but moralism. To say that I am bad and I need Jesus, that's the gospel. Moralism doesn't save. Moralism doesn't do anything except make us feel more guilty that we can't do better because we can't do better. But the gospel says, boy, your sin is great. Your needs are great. You don't need to try harder. You need to know Jesus. Grace that brings forth gratitude gratefulness he said let us show gratitude to Christ for what he's done we ought to be on our knees every day we ought to be on our face every day saying thank you Lord for the work you did in my life by grace by your power and for your glory thank you Lord that you have done this in my life it's not of me that song we sing based on Psalm 115.1 not to us, O oh Lord, but to you be the glory. Not to us, O oh Lord, but to you be the gratitude. Not to us, O oh Lord, but to you be the praise. It's what the gospel is really all about. And there is a fear. There, there should be a reverence and an awe. And that awe, you've heard me talk about awe before. Awe is something that strikes you with fear and strikes you to just want to worship it. That's why there's no such thing as an awesome car. No such thing as an awesome hamburger. No such thing as an... What did I hear this last week? Oh, something. I can't even remember. But I went... I've written a blog article. I've got to get on there. It just says, I give up. I quit. I, I resign. I'm going to quit trying to say the word awesome ought to be reserved only for God. But it really should. Because there's nothing in this world that strikes me to worship except Him. There's nothing in this world that causes me to want to just bow before it and say, oh, oh, my car, you're worthy of my worship. You're awesome. I like food. 
but never yet have I seen a steak and lobster combination. And I love steak and lobster combinations. You want to have me over sometime. I love those things, but I've never seen a steak and lobster combination anywhere at any time that made me just want to say, wait a minute, we can't eat this. Let's just bow down and worship it. Never seen that. It's not awesome. It's good. It's great. It's, it's tasty. But it doesn't make me want to worship it. It makes me want to eat it. But it doesn't make me want to worship it. And the writer here is saying, listen, folks, when you see what Christ has done, when you see the glory of what Christ has done, when you understand and you sense and there's a reality about what Christ has done in your life, there will be gratitude, there will be worship, there will be gospel fear, there will be reverence, there will be awe. And you will respond with a, an acceptable service, an acceptable worship of this God. Do you see that? Do you understand all that he's done in bringing, getting us out of Mount Sinai and getting us to Mount Zion? Do you understand what he's done to get us out of a kingdom of legalism and law and get us into a kingdom of his grace? That doesn't just say, as we talked about earlier in this, and I'll close with this, but it's important that we say this over and over and over until we really get it. It's not, Christ is not just a, a God who says, listen, I want to tell you the way to God. I want to point you in the right direction. I want to say, if you'll follow that path, and if you'll work hard and stay on that path, maybe you'll find God. That's not what Christ is. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel is Jesus saying, I am God. You come to me and I will take you. I'll not only begin your salvation, I'll not only be the author of your faith, I'll be the finisher of your faith. That's what the writer of Hebrews said. I'll take you down that path. I will walk with you down that path. I will be your strength on that path. I will be your GPS on that path. I will guide you every step of the way to be sure that you get to where you need to go. Will we slip and fall? Mm, yeah, all the time. We mess up, yeah. This friend of mine this past week messed up big time. Took his own life. But he still, he knew the one who was his guide. A lot of things happen, make people do crazy things. But he was in Christ, no doubt in my mind. And he's worshiping now with reverence and all like he's never worshiped. But we need to get a glimpse of that in this life. He carries us he finishes it. He doesn't, let a, he doesn't do like every other religion and say, I hope you make it. hope you do good enough. He is our righteousness. He is our hope. He is our salvation. He is our strength. Jesus, our mediator, our savior, is our God. Let's pray. We who are in Christ, we who are in Christ, belong to a spiritual, eternal, 
an unshakable kingdom. If we are not in Christ, we belong to a physical, temporary, and very shakable kingdom. The only way for our kingdom to be spiritual, eternal, and unshakable is for it to be in Christ. Father, I pray for men and women here in this room this morning who are not in Christ, who do not know you, who've never experienced your grace in their life to change them, to sprinkle them with the blood of Christ and declare them not guilty, not because they're not guilty, but because now they're in Christ and he is not guilty and we are given the great joy of his righteousness. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will work. I pray for others, Lord, that your, that your disciplining to get them walking in the right direction. I pray for others, Lord, who know you. That they will realize, Lord, that knowing you brings about a great humility and a love for brothers and sisters to help them who are weak and help them who have feeble knees. Lord, use us to strengthen one another. and to exalt Christ in all things. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.